Welcome to another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. Joined by Lance Meadow, I am John Schmelk. The phone number for you is 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. It's all presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to an amazing Giants prizes. Good afternoon, everybody. A lot of stuff to talk about today on Big Blue Kickoff Live. No guests, so get on the phones at 201-939-4513. And two pieces of news, Lance. One, the NFL schedule. Dates and times of all the games were announced last night. We knew the opponents ready. Now we know when those are going to happen. We'll touch on that second. The story of the day, though, is the first media availability in person of the season with select offensive and defensive players. But more importantly... Dave Gettleman with his annual pre-draft press conference and a couple nuggets, I think, that are interesting. I'll let you go first. What's your nugget number one? Well, he was asked about how he would characterize the depth of this year's class, John, and I thought that was one of the biggest takeaways because normally GMs obviously want to keep things close to their chest and they don't want to reveal much, but he used the term thick when he was describing a few positions and a few that came to mind for him was the secondary. He grouped corners and safeties. He said both he felt there's thickness to that group. He also mentioned wide receivers has some thickness. And I agree with the wide receivers for sure. And then the other one was, which I'm sure the fans are going to be interested, was offensive tackle that he mentioned he felt had some thickness. So read into that as you wish. Does that mean perhaps second round, third round, they have some guys on the board that interest them? I don't think that's a stretch, but that to me was maybe one of the biggest takeaways, the fact that he pinpointed three positions in particular that he thought had some thickness and depth. And overall, to take it a step further, John, he said in all his years of being a general manager, not of being in the NFL within a front office, mm -hmm. but during his tenure with Carolina and now his second year with the Giants, in his mind, this is the deepest draft class overall that he's ever had the opportunity to look at and put a board together. So he's confident that the fact that they've got a lot of volume in terms of picks, that they're going to be able to walk away with guys going deep into the fourth round that potentially could make an impact on the roster. Yeah, his quote was, there are more players graded in rounds one through four than he has in any draft that he's been general manager. So again, I think, in my opinion, there's like a really big group of players kind of between that second and third round that I think a lot of teams will all have in that group, but they'll be ranked differently within the group, right? So the they'll feeling fluctuate. the feeling I'm getting from around the league, Lance, is that once you get past 17 or 18, you could have one team with the player as the 22nd player in the draft, and another team has that same player 42nd or 52nd. And... I think there's a lot of differences in draft boards around the league for that reason, which means to me you can have a lot of movement because one team might value a player that's available more than the other, which means one team would be willing to trade up and another team would be willing to trade down because they have different grades on the players that might be available. So um, to me, that could indicate, especially late first round into the second and third, you could have a lot of movement. Dave Gettleman said with 12 picks, He'd be aggressive if there's a few spots he has to jump to go and get somebody. If he's not confident they'll fall to him, he'll do that. I got the sense it's more smaller moves than, you know, packaging a bunch of picks to move up 20 or 30 spots. That's the feel that I got from listening to him talk. Um, he has moved up before in the draft. He hasn't moved down. He would not commit whether or not he would dip into next year's 
draft to move up. He would not comment on that. Something that he was unwilling to do for last year's draft. He said he was unwilling to dip into the 2019 draft and move up in the 2018 draft. So just something to keep in mind. Um, a couple other things he mentioned that I thought was interesting. He did say that he thought there were a few gold jacket level players in this draft. Whether or not they beat available at six, he said, I think that's borderline, which I think, based on what we've talked about in this class, I think that's absolutely accurate. Then he also said, and I think uh, maybe we buried the lead with this, he does believe that there is one or more, he said, generally he would not put a number on it, Super Bowl caliber quarterbacks that can lead you to win a Super Bowl in this class. Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? I don't know that. He also said, if we have a first-round grade on a player, it means we love that player. And he said, if we get there, and the quarterback's the best player, and again, position value, if the guys are graded evenly, they'll probably edge it to the quarterback because it's a more valuable position. But they'll pick the best player. If that best player is a quarterback, they're going to take him. So to me, that means the door's open at 6, the door's open at 17. If they get there, if the quarterback's the best player, they're going to take the quarterback. So... It's not ruled out, folks. I know a lot of people are afraid that it's ruled out or that they know they're not taking one at six. Let me tell you, if that Super Bowl caliber quarterback is there at six, I'm fully confident the Giants will take him. Uh, He did point out when asked, you know, what's going to dictate whether or not you take that first-round quarterback? It depends who else is available. And I think that's true, too. You know, maybe Dwayne Haskins would be a great pick at six, but not if Nick Bosa's there. And that's kind of how I think they're looking at it. So to me... Based on what Dave Gettleman said today, quarterback very much on the table, just depending on who's available, when the Giants pick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and making sure they maximize the value of all their selections. Well, John, it's not so different from last year. I mean, they picked higher, but when Barkley was on the board, so were quarterbacks. Yep. And they ultimately went with the running backs. And quarterbacks so. they did like, by the way. Yeah, but ultimately they felt Barkley was just too appeasing was, to pass up on. Better player. Best overall talent still on the board. So... To your point, they could get to six, could be quarterbacks on the board, but they may say to themselves, I'm just throwing out a hypothetical here. This had nothing to do with the press conference, but Quinn and Williams is on the board. If Ed Oliver is on the board, if they feel that they're a better overall player than the quarterback, John, they're going to take Ed Oliver, they're going to take Quinn and Williams. Especially if it's a significant difference. Yeah, so I mean, Mm -hmm. that obviously was something that hit home and... The other thing, just to expand upon the points that you laid out, he was asked about the overall quarterback class. He was pressed a lot about that. He described it as a good quarterback class, and then the follow-up was, well, Dave, what do you think of this year's quarterback class compared to 2018? Good good try. He did not take the bait, which I don't blame him. So he wasn't going to necessarily reveal all his secrets. The other thing that I wanted to piggyback off of, the volume of picks they have, John, and I thought it was interesting when he said, You don't want to waste a pick on a player if you don't feel that player is going to have a legitimate shot to make the roster. Now, I read into that, and you alluded to this. If if you were to ask me, I would say that it's unlikely they're going to use all 12 picks. I think they're going to package maybe one or two. Not a home run move, as you mentioned, but I, I still find it very difficult to believe they're going to utilize all 12 picks. They're going to bring in 12 players through the draft because I think realistically, if you do the math, I don't think they feel there's room no. for 12 guys to make the roster. And in addition to that, Lance, he pointed out that there is such a wide berth between their second round pick at 37 yeah. 
and their third-round pick in 95. And much like I said a couple weeks ago, I'm like, it's going to be painful watching all those good players come off the board. He laughed, and you could see the pain in his eyes because he knows he's going to see a lot of good players gone between those two. So I think if a move-up happens... That's the area we're going to see the move up or the addition of a pick in, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I would agree with you. And the way to do that is you package some of your mid to late round fours, picks. fives, Correct. things like that to mm-hmm. uh, make the move. And the other thing he mentioned is he's very excited for the first time that he has two first rounders. He giggled over it essentially, and he said, uh, "Normally you go for dinner." After you make your first round pick, well, they're going to have to hang around in the war room because there's such a quick turnaround between 6 and 17. He said it's fun. A couple other things he said, going back to your point about the depth of the class, when you have that many players that are good players, there's a better chance of matching talent with need because there's so many good players at so many different positions because it's a deep draft. You have a better chance of finding a player at a position you need than just having to pick the best player, even if it's not at a position that you necessarily have a big need at. Yeah, and that makes sense because if they feel, going back to how we started off the program, John, that there's a lot of depth at wide receiver. There's a lot of depth at offensive tackle. There's a lot of depth at pass rusher, corner, safety. Then they're probably saying to themselves, hey, when we get to the fourth round and we say, you know what, right now our starting third corner is up in the air, but we see this guy as a potential starter, let's take him. So I think it's a little bit easier to match value and need simultaneously in a draft like this that has a lot of substance beyond perhaps the first and the second round. But at the same time, he also warned against reaching because he claimed that you always will have that come back to bite you if, especially high in the draft, John, if you say to yourself, we need a quarterback because Eli may only have two years and that's what they prioritize as opposed to saying, hey, you know what? There's a pass rusher on the board that is going to be an impactful player that we'll have under our control for five years because of the fifth-year option, and we might as well go after that player. So, you know, those are obviously big debates that go on across war rooms. I don't think that's anything startling, but he just sort of peeled back some of the layers of the mindset and the discussions that go on leading up to the draft, and I think it's understandable It's rationale that other GMs would certainly back. And, you know, the other thing to take into consideration with respect to the need angle here, he emphasized, John, when you look at the defensive side of the ball, he wants a playmaker at every single level of the defense. He said lead dog was the the phrase he used. That's a proper way to phrase it. Same difference. No, but that's the point. And when I heard that, the first thing that registered in my mind, well, you know, do they have a lead dog on the defensive front? He said they're very happy with B.J. Hill and Dalvin Tomlinson, but... He know, indicated he, he did not consider those guys lead Correct, dogs. and did mm-hmm. not bring up a defensive end, John, within that conversation. Now, correct. when asked about, okay, well, what do you think of other layers? He brought up Alec Ogletree at the linebacker position. Mm-hmm. He looks at his lead dog, and he looks at Jabril Peppers and Antoine Bethea, their two new safeties, as lead dogs as well. So... What's missing in that equation, John? Cornerbacks and edge rushers. There you go. So, once again, if you connect the dots, perhaps that's a little influence into what they're going to do come draft day. And those are two positions that we focused on a lot, by the way. And it's, it's, it is a need, and they think that they can match some need um, to value at some point in the draft. A couple other things I'll say based off what Gettleman spoke about. A couple other things I start on my notepad here. Uh, we'll get very confident we'll get a very good player at 17. And I happen to agree with him on that. To me, I have like 19 to 20 players, and I'm like, all right, these are really good first-round guys. 
I think 17 is a great spot to be. Because I think you're going to see one of those players left on the board and you're going to be able to grab them. Because physically, all of them can't be gone before the Giants pick at 17. So I'm with Dave. I think a really good player will be there at 17. I think that's right about the cutoff, I think, where you know you start getting into maybe talent that some teams have in the first round, other teams have in the second round. Um, I mean, I'll count the players right here on my list. I got 5, 10. I have to, actually, at 17, I have a little bit of a drop-off in terms of player value, and that's right where the Giants are. So there's 17 players that I'd be thrilled to get at 17. Well, you know what that means? I'm getting one of those guys at 17. So I feel really good about that spot. I think Dave Gettleman feels really good about that spot too. Yeah, I think he echoed those exact sentiments, John. And once again, if you want to read between the lines, does that indicate, John, that it's probably highly unlikely for those that want to speculate that they would look to move one of those first rounders? Mm -hmm. If he's confident that they can get two great players in the first 17 picks, once again, something to just think about. That means they obviously look at this draft having some substance in the first round, and they believe they can walk away with two players that'll come in and make an impact on this roster in year one. Absolutely right. So I wouldn't necessarily run with the narrative that they'll have the itchy finger to perhaps make a move. Unless, of course... I preface that statement with if a player becomes available who's established, meaning somebody already on a roster as opposed to somebody that's actually within this draft class. That's different. One other note I'll make, and I think this was all the big points that he's made that were important. He said, yeah, I guess the only one I think that is really significant. First to third round guys, he expects to come in and play right away and contribute right away. You know, starter, quote-unquote, nickel corner, third wide receiver. Someone that's in your normal rotation of players on a game-in, game-out basis, and everything after the third round can be bonus. And I think that's true. I think that's a, usually the way a lot of people look at it. You get picked in the first three rounds, you, you are expected to come in here and help right away. After that, sometimes it's a little bit more of a development, and that's fine. Well, and I think that's something that has been talked about over the last few years, decades, in terms of most teams figure, hey, you want to hit home in those first three rounds. And then anything else, pretty much icing on the cake, or at least you're coming in knowing, hey, it's going to be a developmental type of player. And speaking of that, I want to jump back to the quarterback topic, which I think relates to what you just mentioned, John. And once again, the Kansas City model came up during the course of the press conference, which everybody has a field day with because Dave Gettleman used that term back at the Combine and... Clearly, the point of emphasis was bringing in a quarterback and having him learn from a veteran or, forget that, just watch, absorb, and not have a baptism by fire. But today, he expanded on that and brought up, it's not just the Chiefs, the Packers did it with Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre. The Chargers did it with Drew Brees and Phillip Rivers. I mean, we could give you tons of other examples. This fascinating... It's not new. That, no, it's not new. And the reason why I feel like a broken record, even though we're stating the obvious, is people ran with, well, you know, they're looking to duplicate the Kansas City model. It's not the Kansas City model. It's the idea that if you could get a young quarterback in, John, so that you avoid drafting the guy with a top five pick and immediately making him your starter. That's the philosophy. Yeah, you don't have to put your rookie quarterback on the field right away. That's exactly. what the philosophy is. That's what it Correct. is. Correct. It doesn't pertain to one team or one franchise. That's the thought process. And he expanded on that today by referencing other examples and just emphasizing 
that if you look at some of the consistent franchises in NFL history, that's how they've gone about developing the next quarterback. As opposed to some other franchises that there's such an itch, there's such an urge to immediately put the quarterback out there that sometimes you get in trouble, John, because they don't succeed. Look at David Carr. Bad offensive line, which is the next criteria that I was going to throw out, which fits David Carr, and it stunts his development and winds up impacting his career. Now, Carr still carved out a very good role and later on joined the Giants and won a Super Bowl here as a backup, but really became a journeyman when, if you would have asked most prognosticators, they would have thought he would have been a legitimate starter for over a decade. Final thing on the quarterback, and I thought this was interesting, and it goes back to what he said at the start of his press conference, and this was a quote about Coach K and John Calipari that he quoted from an article, I think he said in USA Today. Yeah. Elite recruitment does not equal good roster construction. And building a roster isn't just about combining a bunch of guys with the right talent. And in the same way, he talked about traits of a quarterback. The question, I think, is what traits about college quarterbacks do you think translate well to the NFL? And, you know, you figure, I'll talk about arm strength, talk about reading defenses. He went another way, and he talked about whether or not these guys have the makeup and mental toughness to make it in the NFL because especially in this market, but anywhere in the NFL, these guys are going to go through adversity. They're going to go through bad times. And a lot of these guys in the draft have never gone through real bad times. They've always been the best player on their team. They've always been on one of the best teams, whether it's on their high school team or in college. They've never had to deal with losing. They've never had to deal with failure. And you have to have a player that knows how to deal with that. So you actually look at the background of some of these quarterbacks and you say, well, which one of these guys has dealt with adversity? All right? And just... Without me doing extra deep research, look, Daniel Jones is the walk-on. Kyler Murray at the transfer. I mean, uh, Drew Lockett, four different offensive coordinators. I mean, there is no lack of adversity with a lot of these guys coming out this year. So just something to keep an eye on moving forward, how it's more than just on the field, especially with the quarterback position that I think influences who teams believe can be their franchise guy. Yeah, mental makeup was a big part of the conversation when he was asked about what traits are appealing. And he even brought up, John, examples of Eli Manning's rookie year, which did Mm -hmm. not necessarily go smoothly, but he referenced there was a game late in the season against the Cowboys, and he had the cojones to call an audible into a draw play. And he felt that was an indication that Eli Manning had the mental makeup in even though there wasn't a whole lot on the line but late in the game 12 seconds under a minute to go and could make those split second decisions could read the defense and they knew okay hey we've got something here so those are the types of things that he says he looks for and you know part of that is even having a conversation I think with the quarterback and understanding to what you just referenced John some of their life experiences yeah. and how mm-hmm. that perhaps helps shape how they could deal with tough times because I don't think it just has to do with, as you mentioned, Drew Locke dealing with multiple coordinators, Kyler Murray transferring. I think it also has to do with, you know, personal matters. Loss of a relative, yeah. and, and whatever. And how you mm-hmm. regrouped, how you responded to that. So the way you go about your research is you got to speak to the individual. You got to speak to coaches. 
Speak to friends, family, and you know how they were tested. Adversity comes in many different forms in life. It's not necessarily just on the sports field. And by the way, I didn't want to leave out Dwayne Haskins when I listed the quarterbacks before. I just couldn't think of anything off the top of my head well, for him. Well, the nerve of you, John. But you know, you know how fans out. will try to turn that into well, something. I just want to you make have sure. An agenda, and well, once again, I do not. It's about time that it became clear on this program. So but go ahead. He did struggle against Penn State in that big primetime game in September. The team won. He brought him back, but he did not play his best game. Then they got hammered by Purdue, forty-nine twenty. Come back the next week, they win. So. He did face some adversity in his first year at Ohio State. Just just to throw it out there so people don't think I'm excluding. I'm trying to leave a hint that they're not going to draft Dwayne Haskins. That's not what I was trying to do. Well, and here's another aspect that I'll add to it, John. He was only a one-year starter, which Correct. means he played behind mm-hmm. guys prior to finally getting right. the gig. So I say that that's another thing. you got to learn patience. You have to learn how to observe the game from a different angle, different lens, before ultimately you get the keys to the offense handed to you. All right, let's get on the phones, guys. 201-939-4513. We'll take your calls on everything Dave Gettleman talked about today, the draft. And we'll give a couple words on the schedule. I don't want to spend too much time on it because, frankly, it's just not that big of a deal. It's important for me because I travel for a living. and I want to know where I'm going and when I'm going where, which is great. But for fans, unless you're buying tickets on the road, it's really not that big of a deal. And I will give the floor to Lance Meadow to give his yearly dissertation as he gets his water in as to why talking about strength of schedule on April 18th, 2019 for the 2019 season doesn't mean a hill of beans because I agree with him. Go ahead, Lance. Well, strength of schedule is based on 2018 results, and I see people overanalyze schedules every single year. Now, granted, you could have computed strength of schedule, John, well before the schedule was released because all you need to know is the opponents. So I'm not telling you anything new, but now it gets extra hyped up because you look at the order of the games and you say, oh, well, this team is playing Mm -hmm. three straight playoff teams from last year. Okay, well, that's how they fared in 2018. How do we know that they're going to be able to duplicate that success. To take it a step further, people get caught up in, oh boy, the last quarter of the season, John's really tough. Boy, you know, two road games back-to-back within the division. How do you know how a team is going to look in Week 14 what, or Week 15? I'm sure everyone thought you know? last year's game at Washington was going to be tough in December. Then all of a sudden, Mark Sanchez is being marched yeah. out there with eight backup offensive linemen, and they destroyed him. So, you know, what are we sitting here? Why are we wasting energy on social media right. breaking down schedules? Now, I'm not saying everybody's in this boat, and I get it. People are energized. You're all yearning for meaningful football. Listen, we're in the same boat, but as John mentioned— it's good to know the order of the game so you could plan out and map out how your fall and your winter season is going to look like. Other than that, aside from a logistical standpoint, spending minutes, half hour, an hour over what a schedule order looks like is completely meaningless and it's a useless activity because at the end of the day, unless you're a soothsayer and you could prove to me that you have an extremely good track record, you have no idea how the second half of the season is going to play out. I think my biggest takeaway just from a structural standpoint, John, is the fact that the Giants have three primetime games. They have no Sunday night games. They got two Monday night games. The Thursday night game is at New England, so that's obviously a notable takeaway. No no favors a short week going to New England, by by the way. Correct, but listen. No favors there. In fairness, though, every team goes through this. Sometimes you have the home game on Thursday where it benefits you. You don't have to travel, and then other times— I remember, what, the Giants, they went to Carolina a few years ago, and you know what? That was one of their best performances yeah, you're right that season. That. Mm-hmm. If I'm correct, actually, that was Ramsey's Barden's all-time greatest performance. Might have so, been. Just remember that, okay? He had a field day at the expense of the Carolina So on, only, anyway. if Ram, only if every game was scheduled on a Thursday, <laughs> Ramsey's could still be with us. Well, there you go. See? You never know what's <laughs> going to be tied into the schedule talk. But that yeah. was 
one of the biggest things. Only two 4 o'clock games, 425 yep. at Dallas week one, 405 Tampa week three. And things are subject to change late in the season yep. in the flex, mm-hmm. but right now 11 of the 16 games are 1 o'clock starts. Now, I know that the two of us, at least I think I feel safely speaking yes. for the both of us, that we have no complaints. 1 o'clock good. From that standpoint, yes. And the other thing that I thought was interesting they have a relatively late buy, I would classify it. No, right? Isn't that fair to say? Week eleven. I think we. I think buys go to the twenty fourth. Yeah, so it will be the next to last week they have their buy. That's correct. Yes. Normally, it's been middle of the season, week eight, week nine, week seven over the last few years. If memory serves me correct, it might actually be the last bye week. Let me check that. No, there is definitely a bye week in week twelve. And you okay. know what? I'll make it easy for you because I tweeted out the full schedule as opposed to you going through everything. And on that schedule, which uh, the NFL, I thought, did a really nice job if my computer can move a little bit sooner. And so by the way, on Twitter, there. that's Lance Meadow, M-E-D-O-W. Well, listen, Just FYI. Any emphasis on the spelling is always helpful. So see here, now we have a nice, <laughs> neat, even line, John, as opposed to you having to go through 17 I different websites. So I'm, I'm looking out for you at times. So week 12 is indeed the last bye week. There you so go. So next to last. last. Yep. All right. Let, let, let's do your calls, folks. 201-939-4513. It's all presented by Coors Light. We got a hard out of three today because we are pre-recording tomorrow's show with three great draft guests. I'll preview them right now. We're going to have Dave Dominic's favorite guy, Rob Rang. We're going to have Rick Saratella. And we're also going to have Dan Shanka with us talking NFL draft. That'll uh, be posted up on the website tomorrow because the office is closed for the observance of uh, the holidays over the weekend. So, just FYI, and again, it's all presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to an amazing Giants prizes. Ryan in New Jersey will lead us off. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guys. How are you? Great, Ryan. What's Hello, up, Ryan? Uh, love the show. Um, I think I, I, I called in the hair late. I think you guys might have already started touching on my first part of my question. But all right, go ahead. Anyway, um, so since uh, I don't have the scouting knowledge that you guys have or the film that you guys have access to, what do you look for in a quarterback to see if he has like that it factor? And I guess you guys touched on diversity was one, uh, or sorry, adversity uh, was one of them. That was one of the um, traits we talked about. Come over. Ryan, you just asked the toughest question that every NFL team that needs a quarterback asks themselves. <laughs> and and I'm serious and there isn't a set answer. Look, you have to have certain physical skills, okay? You know, but to me, honestly, what I've learned about quarterback playing, Kevin Gilbride, who, by the way, congratulations to Kevin, who's going to be the head coach and general manager of the XFL New York franchise, which with New York Empires, is that what it's going to be? I forget what the name uh, of it is. You may be right. Anyway, sure. um, congratulations to him. But, you know, we, we do college games together, and he always told me, he goes, John, look, I used to think coming up that having the big arm was the most important thing for a quarterback, and it's really the third or fourth most important thing. And Pat Shermer said a similar thing a couple years ago talking about quarterbacks. So, to me, it's about processing. How do you see the field? How can you anticipate? Can you see what the defense is doing and know immediately where to go with the football? Um, how do you react when there's pressure on you? Do you keep your wits about you? Do you panic? Do you freak out? You know, How do you manage those types of live situations with your instincts? Mm-hmm. And I think those are the things that are most important. But the one physical trait you have to have is accuracy. Because I think accuracy is very hard to teach. And I think accuracy goes back to the anticipation and reading coverages and staying calm. You stay in your mechanics because you're calm, and that's how you're accurate. So I think you have to be accurate, and then you look at the other stuff. So to me, those are the most important things. And all that ties yeah. into being comfortable on the field. See, that that's what I look for, meaning it's not overwhelming. And I'm not just talking about the biggest stage. I'm talking about any element of the game. You don't it look just, panicked. Yeah, it, it just looks right. like mm-hmm. it's a natural flow. And, and I'll use an example. When we were talking about the quarterbacks last year, I was very high on Baker Mayfield. 
Now, what jumped out to me about Baker Mayfield is, yes, the arm strength, the accuracy, but you know what? Nothing ever seemed too big for him. He was ultra-confident. Now, that may have turned people away. I actually found that as an attractive characteristic. I liked the bravado because he was in his element. And you know what? He was an ultra-competitor, and he was more than willing to go toe-to-toe with any individual and any team that was thrown his way. And I think you want that from the quarterback because if the quarterback's the face of the franchise that everybody uses is often a cliché, if that's the quarterback, if that's the guy that you follow into the trenches, if he's got no confidence, if he has no bravado, then how do you expect the rest of the team to find that? I agree. And I was just asking because I have some friends of mine who are big, uh, the Buffalo quarterback, Tyree Jackson, just because he's, uh, he's like, what, 6'7"? Six, 6'7", seven, 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 yeah, he's a tall guy. Yeah. But um, I'm like, well, I don't know. Does he really have, like, a good level of competition? They're like, I don't know. He's got the rocket arm. That's all you need. I'm like, well, Davis Webb had a cannon for an arm. and he Bingo. And, and, Ryan, and I'm happy you brought that up because I think oh, – I'm not trying to badmouth people, but I think a lot of people got wrapped up, and I'll use the word generic, generic people, got wrapped up because I saw Davis Webb flinging the ball all over the place in practice, and his ball looks pretty, and he has every physical tool you would want in a quarterback. I can argue Davis Webb has better physical tools than Eli Manning ever had, and he's not a tenth of the quarterback that Eli Manning ever was because physical tools matter, but if you can't combine that with everything else, you got nothing. I agree. And then uh, two more, two more things. One, one of the uh, arm strength. So one of the knocks on Daniel Jones was that he doesn't have like that elite arm strength. It's not elite. Where that's his correct. Arm strength rank as far as like maybe like Eli Manning when he was coming out or like any sort of other quarterbacks we're familiar with. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for the call and, and, and good question. I would consider his arm strength to be average. Um, but for example, you know also his average arm strength, Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan doesn't have a cannon. I think Daniel Jones and Matt Ryan's arms are actually probably fairly similar. How does Matt Ryan do in the NFL? He does fine. Arm strength's not worries me about Daniel Jones. He's a big kid. He'll get the ball where it needs to go. I would consider him more of a touch passer, which is fine. For me, it's consistent accuracy for him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I think that's what you worry about. And I think he's a difficult guy to scout in a lot of ways, Lance, because if you look at Duke, there's not one other person on that roster on the, on the offense that's even being considered to be drafted. From the offensive line, yep. who they couldn't protect him, to the wide receivers. And he, more than any other quarterback in the draft, had more drops than any other quarterback. That's That Huge. metric is 100% Huge. accurate. It's not even close to not being true. Now, does that mean that you know you have to say, well, of those things, he's going to be great then? No, I'm not saying that either. But you do have to take those things into consideration. And talking to a couple of guys around the league, people that talk to scouts and stuff like that, there are going to be... More than a few, um, maybe not majority, but it's going to be, I would not surprise me if a third of the league had a first-round grade on Daniel Jones. The NFL likes what they see in him. They do. And I have no idea what the Giants have on him in terms of a grade. I don't. But he is a guy that NFL teams like because of his frame, his personality. He was coached well in college. You see that with his footwork, the way he goes through his projections, uh, progressions, pardon. But to me, I worry about his consistent accuracy, Lance. And I also saw... When there's pressure, I did see some panic. And that's something we talked about with Haskins, too. He didn't handle pressure well. I'm not sure Jones... Now, he would stand in there and make some throws. But other times, if that first first or second read wasn't there, you would kind of see him like, oh, no, now, now what do I do? And I saw him not stay calm like the way you talked about. He would stand in there and make some throws if he knew where to go with the ball. But once where he thought he was supposed to go with the ball wasn't there, 
I sometimes saw him maybe not quite know how to handle that. Well, and to me, John, that's the biggest takeaway when the environment around the quarterback is not ideal because you can't fault him for drop passes, to your point. You can't fault him for a rough offensive line. You can fault him for, well, how does he handle though those circumstances? So that, to me, would be the biggest takeaway. It's very similar to Josh Rosen. And I'm not trying to open up Pandora's box in terms of speculation, but Thank you. what Rosen dealt with this past season in Arizona, rough offensive line, not much of a running game, and tough circumstances for a rookie quarterback. He started 14 games. So do you look at the results, the numbers on the page, his touchdown to interception ratio, or do you say, okay, we understand the factors around Josh Rosen. Now let's look at when pressure was in his face, what did he decide to do with the football? Because that's a trait, that's a mechanism that you're going to want to see when maybe you bring in that quarterback under your circumstances and things don't go according to plan, as opposed to just looking at a bunch of numbers on paper. We have a couple open lines, by the way, at 201-939-4513. I have Dane Brugler's book right here, by the way. His draft guide is out. He'll be on with us next week to promote it. It's a great book. Um... Just want to read a couple things that he has in here about Jones, okay? Just so you people get a perspective from somebody else. He has him ranked as the fourth best quarterback in the class. He has Haskins one, Murray two, and Locke three, all right? He has a second-round grade on Daniel Jones, if I'm not mistaken. This is the stuff that he says that's good. Quick trigger, ready to fire. Recognizes coverage assignments and finds the out. Has a pre-snap plan. Slightly above average arm strength. Understands placement on downfield routes. So all stuff with that is good. Mobility is an asset. Steps up in the pocket, keeps his eyes elevated. Stronger and tough. Impeccable character, okay? Weaknesses. Eye manipulation and internal clock, and that's when I was talking about that, that's the internal clock stuff. Yep. Is underdeveloped. Needs to find a better balance between not rushing the process but also playing with urgency. He can somehow stare at receivers and lead defenders to the target. And sometimes deep ball timing can be an issue. And his overall final deal is Jones doesn't have any exceptional physical traits and his internal clock needs work, but he is a cerebral passer who makes accurate reads with active eyes and feet, projecting as a B-level NFL starter. That's what Dane has for his evaluation of Jones. And I think that's kind of how I've been talking about it too. I I think that's right on the money. Yeah. Uh, Listen, when we've been talking about the quarterbacks for the last few weeks and months on this show, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind with Daniel Jones is, you know, working with Cutcliffe and some of the quarterbacks that he has had the luxury of working with, including the Manning brothers, and certainly the non-ideal factors surrounding him, John, as you mentioned. And lastly, you know, his sharp ability, I think, to handle an offense and read the field. But with that comes question marks and weaknesses, like any other young quarterback. So somebody called up, I remember recently on the show, and said, if the Giants are at 37, would you feel comfortable taking Daniel Jones as opposed to 17? And, I'd feel a lot better about it myself. And that was my answer. My answer yeah. was, it's in the conversation at 37, much more so than at 17. And I think you have a reason right. to dissect him a little bit more if he's still on the board at 37. Now, here's the question. If the Giants believe what Dane Brugler is saying here, which I don't know if they do or not, I have no idea, that he projects and his upside is a B-level NFL starter. I don't think they pull the trigger on that because I think they understand they want an eventually elite NFL starter. 
But if they believe if everything works out, he could be an A-level NFL starter, then it's a different conversation. And I think that's the part of the evaluation that's important because you can have weaknesses and you can coach those out of a guy. You can make them better. These guys are not finished products, right? So what do the Giants think his high potential upside is? Do they think he can be an A-level Super Bowl starting quarterback? Or, do, or don't they? And that, to me, is going to determine whether or not he can be their pick at 17. I don't think six is going to happen. I know people have mocked him there. That would blow me away and surprise the hell out of me. But if he's the pick at 17, it's because the Giants think he can develop into a Super Bowl-level quarterback. If they don't, they're not going to pick him there. And I don't know what the Giants' evaluation is, but you're with me, right, Lance? If they don't think he can be a Super Bowl quarterback, the way Gettleman talked about that 17th pick today, I can't imagine them taking him there. Well, and Gettleman used terms as we love the guy. It would have to be at that level, John, for right. them to you know, provide the proper rationale to utilize a first-round pick on somebody like that. So, yeah, I would think that there's very few question marks when you take a quarterback in the first round. That doesn't mean that he's a finished product, but meaning he's got all the intangibles already. You just need to refine them at that point. That's every, how I view that. Every player is a range of outcomes based on how they develop, and that's how you pick them based on risk. Well, and the other thing that Dave Gettleman brought up that I don't think we said near the top of the show that we should emphasize is he wasn't selling Kyle Loletta, but he did remind the reporters, hey, you know what? Kyle Loletta's still on the roster. Kyle's a guy that's still in the developmental phase, and we're trying to get him to the level where he could be more and more comfortable as a starter. So the reason why I'm bringing that up, John, as you talk about, well— do they want to take another quarterback that they're going to have to go through the motions of the development and maybe a little bit more heavy lifting if they already have somebody currently on the roster that's going to... Do they want Correct. two of those, right. I mm -hmm. guess is my point. No, that's a good point. All right, by the way, Mo in Ohio has a question about Kyle Oletta, so let's go to Mo next. Mo, what's up? Hey, what's up? How are you doing, guys? We're right, good, Mo. Mo. What's up? Good. All right, so I'm, I'm glad that I called in at this time because I do have a question about Kyle Oletta. Um, sure. What What do you guys? How, how do you guys feel that the team feels about Kyle Like, as like confidence wise, Mo, and I, becoming the next guy. I, I think know, they consider. Uh, I think they consider him a developmental quarterback. As Dave Gettleman said about this year's draft, anybody picked after the third that develops is a bonus. So you develop him. You hope they thought he had the potential to become something. Otherwise, they wouldn't have picked him. I believe. I think they said publicly they had a third round grade on the guy, if I remember right, correct? So they think he yeah. can become something, but he's a young player. He's developing. And i got to remind people of this. The dude played at Richmond. It's not even an, yeah. F, it's not even an FBS program, all right? Right. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's a lower competition. It was never going to be a year proposition for him. That's a two-year proposition. So if they don't draft a quarterback this year, they'll continue to develop him. And then by the time you get the next offseason – you should have a much better picture what he is when you make your decision right. on a quarterback going forward. But let me put it this way. His presence, Mo, yeah. is not going to make them not pick a quarterback this year. That's not going to happen. That's what I was getting at. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, see, I see what you're saying. And my, my other thing is, um, I know you guys always talk about the quarterbacks that are coming out this year compared to last year. What if Colorado would have came out this year. Where would you put him? You know, as far wow. as like the you know the the quarterbacks that are coming out this year. Good question. Where would you think that he will be projected? Good question. Um, let me look at the list here. I mean, I I, I would I probably mean, have him in the Ryan Finley, Jarrett Stidham, Tyree Jackson range. You know, fourth, you know, middle third, late fourth round type of uh, middle 
to late third, early fourth round player is probably where I would have him in that group with Ryan Finley and Stidham and, you know, Garden Minchu, guys like that. Yeah, I don't think his spot dramatically changes from where he was ultimately selected last year. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And then one more point, one more point. And also, obviously, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I'm, I'm an Ohio State alum, so I'm a little bit biased. My dream scenario will be the draft task of the sixth, and then either Ed Oliver, Burns, or Cleveland Farrell. All right, so Mo, Mo, real quick, I'm going to give you your nightmare scenario. So you would not be happy about Rashawn Gary, Devin Bush, and Chase uh, Winovich. You would be very unhappy with that, I would imagine. Definitely not. <laughs> well, because he's an Ohio <laughs> State fan. That's why he's not going to be happy with that. You're making a Buckeye root for a Wolverine. Yeah. Be painful. And by the way, Mo, I'll say this, and I have no affiliation to Ohio State. One of my favorite players in this whole draft class is Terry McLaurin. I think he yes. is a hell of a football player. And if he's there Absolutely. with that pick at the end of the third round or start of the fourth round, I would pick him in a second. second and not blink an eye. Absolutely. And the thing about McLaurin is, like, uh, I mean, because I've been watching Ohio State. Obviously, I'm, I'm a diehard Ohio State fan. And you can see his progression from, from the first time he got here until his senior year. Like, you could tell that he's been working hard about, you know, you know, to get to where he's at right now. So I would love to have him. I would love to have him, too. Him and Haskins, yeah, that would be great. Thank you, Mo. <laughs> Thanks for calls, guys. All right, Mo. <laughs> Appreciate it. And Draymond right, Jones is another guy that we talked a little bit about when we had our Ohio State guest on. And, you know, he's that defensive tackle type that has the athleticism to rush the passer. That could be a middle-round pick that Dave Gettleman likes because he likes those defensive tackles that can get interior pressure. Well, and I think there's a few of them at the top of the draft. I'm going to be interested to see how quickly those guys go off the board. Correct. Because that may be an indication of how the rest of the league views those types of players, too. And remember, the Giants did take a guy named Jonathan Hankins, who came from Ohio State, who was an interior guy. So, you know, there is some connection between this organization, different regime. But if those guys can be versatile enough where they could be moved outside, play inside, and still provide pressure no matter where you line them up, similar to a B.J. Hill type of guy, there's value to that because you know then, John, you're going to keep him on the field for three downs. Yep. You don't want to draft a guy that high if you're going to take him off the field in third-down pass rushing situations. Dave points out, by the way, the XFL New York team does not have a name yet, but there is a New York tennis team called the New York Empires, well, and go. I didn't know New York tennis teams existed. But Learn something new every day. I don't know where I pulled that Empires thing out of my, you know what, but whatever. 201-939-4513. It's all presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to an amazing Giants prizes. Let's go to Andy in Wisconsin. He's up next. Andy, how are you? Hey, John. Hey, Lance. How's it going? Thanks Doing well, Andy. Michael. What's up? Um, so I want to make a comment and kind of get you guys' uh, opinion reaction, but then also uh, leave up a question. Cool. Um, I, I know it, you, you, John, have been good about cautioning and kind of playing devil's advocate in response to this, but... I see too much on social media, sometimes from beat writers and other places, uh, and sometimes the GM and the coach and players, and I understand coming from them, they're going to be positive about you know the last eight games of the season, but uh, it doesn't correlate. Just like I think strength of schedule, everything differs from year to year. We yeah. can't bank on saying the offense is going to be good because the last eight games of the season were good. Absolutely. Um, and we, you know, you take a look at what happened when McAdoo was hired as the head coach. The offense fell off, and we thought that we, you know, just need to fix the defense, and <laughs> we made the playoffs. But then it was one and done. Yep. And then going into the next year, try to build up the offense a little bit. The defense fell off. So everything is different from year to now, year. Now, Andy, I will um, say this, and I think the one thing that's a little bit different this year is that the Giants, when they played better at the end of the year, 
they really changed the way they played. And they went to a different style that I think matches the talent better. And as they now added Kevin Zeitler to the mix, I think matches their talent even better as a play-action, big-personnel type of team that is going to you know, not spread it out as much. And I think that's more fitting towards Eli Manning and what he's always done well over the course of his career. So I do think that's a good fit moving forward. Obviously, you know, injuries and things like that can change it. But, you know, barring those injuries, I'm not telling you it's going to be a top five offense. I would be very surprised if this offense doesn't average 24 points a game next year uh, with the current personnel, barring any injuries, playing the way they played the final eight games of last year. I feel pretty good about that style and it fitting the personnel that they have. And we've seen it, whether it's, you know, the Falcons or the Rams. Um, Kyle Shanahan's system is very heavy on play-action pass. It works, and we've seen it work in the NFL time and time again. So I do feel good about that style transferring from last year to this year. Now, again, like you said, there's no guarantees, but I like that facet of that crossover happening. Well, and also I think it gave them an indication of how they can move personnel and utilize personnel without Odell Beckham on the field. I mean, that was at least something to take away. But to your point, they played the Redskins, and we referenced this. Mark Sanchez started that game, and Redskins were decimated by injuries across the board. So, you know, how much can you read into that? In in the Dallas game, yeah, Dallas played most of its starters, oh, but yeah, not necessarily— They, no, they tried. You know, they, they, they were competitive, but we're also not talking about, once again— the creme de la creme of the NFL down. Well, and you also well. have two of the worst defenses in the league in yeah. the Niners and Bucks. Correct. But then on the other hand, you have the Titans, who, who you scored zero against because the weather was terrible. If you're in a better right. environment there, you're yeah. going to score more than zero points. So there are things pulling. Yeah. Bo- and you yeah. play the Bears, too, which is one of the best defenses in the league. Correct. So you have a pull in both ways. Mixed results. Yep. Essentially. Yep, yep. No, no, I agree. And I, I do want to give credit because I think part of it was the line, but I think whatever happened you know, with Shermer and his, his play calling play calling and scheme, it, a light clicked for him in the second half. So, like you said, there's optimism, but I just hate hearing, you know, that whatever, it's going to be well, good, good and we're good to go. So, yeah, anyway. Nothing's um, guaranteed. My, no. Right, right. Um, my question I'll, I'll leave you guys with is uh, Gettleman talked about lead dogs and um, trying to get, uh, I think it was the term used, lead dog for the defense. Yes. Um, and at each you know, kind of section D-line, linebackers, cornerbacks, whatnot. So my question is in regards to the defensive players, because I just think almost without a doubt we're going defense at six. I would be surprised if it was quarterback, but probably defensive line too. Um, Of the defensive line and namely, I guess, both interior and pass rushers, if they have the same grade on a couple of these players, who do you think separates themselves as captain material, lead dog material, you know, when we're looking at the people like Brian uh, or Burns, um, Sweat, um, you know, a uh, couple of those, you know, the other guys. So, well, I guess a really Oliver, good question. Are we talking about? We're going to throw pretty much all the elite pass rushers um, in that conversation. All right, uh, he, he'll, he'll give you the names to talk three, about. Not, not Bosa, not let's do Sw- Williams or Allen. I'd be very surprised if they were there. Maybe one of them drops, but okay. Um, so, so let's do know. Oliver Sweat. Burns and Gary. You think that's a fair four guys to talk about? Looking, yes, that's okay. what I would yeah. be looking at. Correct. I appreciate the call. Thanks, uh, thanks, man. Thanks, thanks Andy. Um, it's a good question. How would I separate these guys in terms of intangibles? That's a really good question. I, I'm not sure, Lance. Well, the other thing that I wanted to clarify is, and Andy brought up captain material. I didn't take it, John, that Gettleman was only Lance referring to the captain 
and the lead dog as being synonymous. I looked at it as he was talking about having an elite guy at every level, a playmaker. That's how I interpreted his lead dog label. So I'm not necessarily looking at all these prospects and saying they've got to be captain material. I'm talking about a guy that's going to be a difference maker, game in and game out on the defensive line. So that's how I would have to interpret that. Ed Oliver, that's a difference maker. If you put him in on the defensive line, he's going to have an impact. Montez Sweat, to the same degree. I'd put him, though, behind Ed Oliver, if you were to ask me. Burns has the versatility where you can sort of mix and match and move him around. Really depends on where you're going to play him. You know, that I would like to know from the team before you take him. But Oliver would fit the bill of lead dog in my mind. And Sweat, I think, would be in that conversation as well. I think both of those guys have the potential that if put in a system where they're utilized correctly, they're going to put up some decent numbers and make an impact. And that's how I view a lead dog. I'm with you. To me, Lance, right now, I have the four guys in my top category in this year's class. I got Bosa, Quinn and Williams, Josh Allen, and Kyler Murray. If any of those four guys are there, I'm picking them and I'm running to the podium, yeah. okay? After that, I think it gets tricky. And as much as I love the Giants pick at 17, which, which we've talked about earlier today, I think six is a tough spot because I think you do have a lot of guys you can consider without much, you know, highway separating these guys. And I, like you said, I think... Ed Oliver, to me, has emerged as the fifth guy. He's the next guy on my list because I think he can be that Fletcher Cox type of pass rusher. And I don't think he has a weakness if he meets his potential. You know what I mean? For Brian Burns, he's never going to be 265 pounds. Well, he's just not. The thing. Which is what, you know what? Neither is Von Miller. And he's pretty damn good, right? Last time I checked. Brian Burns could be one of the best pass rushers in the league. I think if you're looking for... Aside from Nick Bosa, the guy with the best pass rush moves in this draft is Brian Burns. I think he's a better pass rusher than Josh Allen, but Allen does a lot of other things better than Burns does. But Burns, in terms of the variety of pass rush moves, I think he's going to be a fantastic pass rusher. But he doesn't have power. He can't set the edge. He has issues with that. Gary, his lack of production scares me. I can't roll the dice on traits at six. He's more of a bull rusher than yeah. an edge guy. And I, I like him better inside. So I'm drafting the guy at six to play him at a position that he didn't play in college? No, 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 no. I'll pass, okay? Then you got Montez Sweat, who I think is a good all-around college player. I don't think he's elite at anything. So would you rather have the guy that's good against the run, a good pass rusher, or would you want the guy that's a great pass rusher and maybe he can get better against the run and burn? So it, it's tough. So... The tricky part for me, I got my top five guys, right? I got Bosa, Williams, Allen, Murray, and then Ed Oliver. What do I do if all those five guys are gone? That's why I'm trying to move back because I got about four or five guys that I like. I like Devin White in that mix too, you know? I don't think Cleveland Farrell's that high, but there's a lot of guys in that spot that I think are interesting. But I'm with you. Oliver's my top guy. Then you're looking at Sweat and Burns, and then you're looking at Gary. I have Gary back with Cleveland Farrell, who I'd consider at 17. I would not consider those guys at six. Well, but also if you then listen to what Dave Gettleman said, the, the reason why I'd be a little bit surprised, John, if they move back, he seems to feel there's 17 guys that are worthy of taking in the first round, at least 17. I don't mean move back at 17. Move back at six. Well, but even but here's the thing. If you're confident about the 17 in total, why even roll the dice? Why not take the guy that you love at six? Well, but maybe there's five guys that you'll be happy with all of them. And you say, let me back to 10 and you or 11. Mean if you could get an extra pick out of it by yeah. moving slightly down. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I and, and I that's that. how you get that extra pick between 37 and 95. 
It's just, it, it depends on how much of a drop-off there is. Because you can love 17 guys, but that doesn't mean that there's not a separation between the love fest. To me, so for me, 5 to 10, I'm getting a really good player. I'm, I'm cool with it. I would have not a problem with any from 5 to 10. If I wind up with Ed Oliver, Dwayne Haskins, Montez Sweat, Brian Burns, Jawan Taylor, or Devin White, I'm thrilled. And I'm not even trying to separate those guys, to be quite honest with you. I'm not. So I'm happy with any of those guys. So if I can move down from six and stay, you know, within the top 10 picks, that's great. And even if I move down to 12, Lance, all right, so then I get maybe one of those guys, first of all, could drop to 11 or 12. You don't know that. Especially if somebody moves up. Would I be mad if I wound up with Devin Bush or Cleveland Farrell or Jonah Williams or, you know, one of those guys? No, I wouldn't. I'd be okay with that. It's cool. So that to me, I like the idea of trading down at six, but I will say this too. My impression is that this will not be a draft where you have a bunch of teams trying to trade into the top five unless the Cardinals end up auctioning off that pick. If Murray's there, someone will go up and get him. I think he's the only player that someone's going to go up and get. Otherwise, I think the top five picks are going to stay where they are. That's my feel. I just feel there's one team... It may not move up to the top five, but there's one team that doesn't right now have a desperate need for a quarterback, but they may be thinking more like the Patrick Mahomes type of feel where they want to position themselves to grab the successor. And I can see somebody being aggressive and making a move into the first round, moving slightly up or just moving into the first round. I mean, they don't have a first round pick or they have a really low first rounder and grabbing a quarterback. And that I think could shake things up. Two teams to me you worry about with that. Or you think that might do it. Maybe not worry. The Bengals. But to me, they're not a team that trades up a lot in situations like that to go get a player. And they have Andy Dalton. Yeah. So, if Haskins is there at 11, I'm confident they'll take him. I don't think they trade up for him. I think the Broncos are happy for whomever between Haskins and Drew Locke gets to him at 10. They'll pick either one. I think they're fine with that. So, I don't think they trade up. The team you watch out for is Washington. You know, if they... Well, Don't Washington somehow Washington is a team that you could argue has a need for a quarterback. Correct. And yeah. that's the team that I can... And they've done it before with Robert Griffin III. So they moved up before and made deals like that. That's the team that I think... And they might be in the Josh Rosen sweepstakes that they decide to move on from him too. So that's the team that I think if anyone's going to move up to get into that top five, I think it would be the Redskins. Yeah, I was thinking more in line a team like the Chargers or the Patriots. Yeah, I could see them going up to 15 or 17, but I don't think they're going into the top 10. no. And I don't think they need to go into the top 10. I think Well, that, depending on who they want. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm even thinking about somebody liking a Drew Locke. And, you know, you may be able to get him outside of the top 10. I don't think that's crazy. You know, all it takes is just one team to head in a different direction. I also think the tight ends are actually going to shake up the first round. I think somebody's going to be very aggressive with TJ Hawkinson. I would not surprise me. If, go high. if he's a top 10 pick, it would not surprise me And I think that's going to force somebody to fall. And then somebody may be aggressive as a result of that. And he's my, if, if somehow, by some minor miracle, because to me, he's Jason Witten 2.0. That's what he is. That's what TJ Hawkins is. He's Witten. If he somehow gets to 17, I know the Giants don't have a tight end need, I go there. Yeah. Scott in New Mexico. He's up next. Scott, what's up? Hi, guys. Hey, Scott. I had a question. Uh, I don't know if this takes place or not. 
Say the Giants wanted to get Kyler Murray, just for argument's sake. Uh, can they have uh, discussions with Arizona? Of course. If they thought, and prior to the draft, yes. in other words. Yeah. Of course. Or, or do they have to wait till that 15 minutes to do whatever no, machinations no. they're No, I mean, do. trades happen with picks all the time before the draft. Scott, okay. I, and I will, and related to that, I will guarantee you, I'm not saying that I have insight or exact knowledge, but I will guarantee you that there could very well be conversations right now. Happening right Cardinals, now. And a scenario where a team says, you know what? We like Dwayne Haskins. We like Drew Locke. We're going to wait and see how the draft plays out. If we get our guy, great. If not, here's what we're willing to offer you for Josh Rosen, assuming you take Kyler Murray. And I could see the infrastructure of a trade being laid out right now to, right. to have themselves in a position based on what transpires in the first round with the QBs. Okay. Now, the second part of the question is basically this. Say uh, everything works out and maybe Arizona's leaning towards giving the Giants Kyler Murray and another team makes an offer to Arizona. Would Arizona be obligated to let the Giants know, hey, we just got an offer from, say, Tampa Bay. They're no. willing to give us this pick and this pick. You, teams don't have to oh. tell anybody anything. Okay, so basically, in other words, the day of the draft, in other words, teams aren't obligated to, to tell anybody else what they got from another no, of team. of course not. Of course not. I would say that about any you know, trade. Secret dealings no. or things no. like that that teams do. Thank you, Scott. Okay, thanks. Appreciate yes, the call. Scott. Yeah. No. Not under any obligation to let anybody know of every discussion that you have until the deal is finalized in the eyes of the league. Everything is up for grabs. We got a hard out, Lance. So I was going to do a request line today, but we're out of time. I don't want to try to squeeze it in. We have a hard out at three. Um, if they do decide to select Kyler Murray and move Rosen, when do you think that gets done? I think that could get done perhaps after they make the first Ooh, pick. See, I think that has I to happen before that the happening. draft. Well, because once again, I could see them having conversations with some teams that say, hey, we may give you a better offer, but we've got to wait and see how the draft plays mm. out. And they may want to see how the mm. dynamics maybe go. We'll see. It's I one of those things. Surprised. I just want them to make the damn decision already so we can oh, adjust man. our. We're doing a mock draft next Tuesday. I want Certainly to be able to know gonna, what's happening at number one. They're not going to convenient do that for your Well, sake. they really we should think that. about that. Yeah. Lance, Absolutely. good stuff. You got it. Thanks for joining us today on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will have a show tomorrow. It'll be a tape show with Paul Dottino. I no calls, but we will have three guests Rob Rang, Rick Saratella. And Dan Shanka from Our Lads. Make sure you tune in on Giants.com for those celebrating. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll see you on Friday on Giants.com. Everybody, have a great day. Have a good one.